hey there! Welcome to Actually It's Phytoplankton Planet Ocean, the podcast series for kids about oceanography. We're celebrating National Science Week by bringing you six science lessons on oceanography topics that you can listen to at home or at school. Now, my regular co-host Lachlan is taking today off, so instead I've got Ivana Setanich dialing in all the way from the US of A. How do you, Ivana? Good morning. <laughs> so I know you're in another country, Ivana, but are you doing anything special to celebrate National Science Week, seeing as we roped you into it? Um, well, as you roped me into it, I will be part of the National Science Week like live. Um, so, I mean, I hope to be in Croatia and I hope to be calling in live a new special event, the one with the artists and hopefully talking some smart things because it's going to be a better time zone than here. But I'm really looking forward to it. And I think, you know, it, it's going to be a great way to to show the kids that, you know, there's a really nice conjunction between the art and science. And it's really important for, you know, the way that we scientists think, but also as the natural artists think about nature and science. Yes, I should mention that on Thursday of this week, National Science Week, we're doing a special art lesson with Kirsten from episode one that is live in Toowoomba and you can also dial in remotely. So we record the podcast in advance, but this Thursday we're doing that cool art lesson. So if you're in Toowoomba, please come along. And Ivana, can you remind our listeners why you're a co-host on my podcast? What's your science job again? <laughs> what do you do? What's your work? Um, I think the reason why I'm a podcast because I was uh, office mate of your other host, Lachlan. Yeah. Well, he used to work at NASA. And similar to Lachlan, I use ocean color to study the oceanic processes. But a little bit more than Lachlan, I'm kind of more into biology, biogeochemistry. Right, so let's get straight to it. Today's lesson is our chemistry and biology combo. We're learning about a little something called the carbon cycle. I've also heard this called the carbon pump, and I will say straight up that it's quite a complex topic. So we'll do our best to digest it, but please remember, grab your resource pack from gotocurious.com. There'll be lots of stuff in there to complement and extend on the concepts that we're covering today. But essentially, folks, it's our poop episode. Ivana, why is it our poop episode? Well, Jamie, you can make everything a poop episode, but this is yes, a real poop episode. <laughs> <laughs> this is a poop episode because one of the really important steps, especially when it comes to the oceanic carbon cycle, but you know, similarly on the land, but really important for oceanic carbon cycle is the step where, where carbon travels through the ocean depths in the shape of a poop. And as you'll hear probably later, maybe learn from more from, from the panda material is that that's a really good way to transport carbon in the ocean really, really fast. And joining us from Southampton in the United Kingdom is Dr. Stephanie Henson. Welcome to the podcast, Stephanie. Hi, thank you for inviting me. Steph, all our guests have to answer this first question. What did you want to be when you were 13? Well, I wanted to be an astronaut because believe it or not, like Ivana, my grandfather worked for NASA and he was a mathematician and engineer and he worked on the Apollo moon landing. So of course cool. I wanted to go to the moon too. <laughs> I did not know that. That's yeah. awesome. That's really cool. <laughs> So what is your job now, seeing as you're not an astronaut? Yeah, sadly not an astronaut. A bit more down to earth. I'm a marine scientist. I work at the National Oceanography Centre in Southampton in the UK. And I work on phytoplankton and how they respond to climate change and their role in the ocean carbon cycle. Cool. So we learned in season one that Ivana also wanted to be an astronaut when she was 13. So it turns out that this year, unfortunately, oceanographers have been needing to do some quarantine before going out to sea because of the lovely COVID-19 pandemic. So at least maybe the two of you, you're getting a bit of that astronaut experience this year. 
Yeah, luckily I haven't no. had to quarantine. I haven't been yeah, anywhere. So, exactly, same here. I think I think both Steph and I are like sitting in front of our computers where other people are on the sea. But yeah, it's, it's a two-week quarantine. And I actually mm. checked it. How long is the quarantine for the people going to International Space Station? It's the same one. So mm-hmm. it's pretty much similar protocol. Um, so you're basically in mission control. Yes, we are mission control. <laughs> Ladies, we've got some pretty mad time zone syncing going on for this episode. It's 8 p.m. here in Australia. What time is it where you are? With me, it's 11 a.m., so very reasonable time. That's good. That's a good time. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's 6, 6.19, here I am, oh, in beautiful butter. only Maryland. Well, thanks to the wonders of technology, we're all here together in a virtual room. But the reasons why we're in three different time zones is because the Earth is massive and we're dotted around three different countries. For us puny humans, our Earth is the gigantic sphere where we live. But within our solar system and the galaxy, the Milky Way, it's just a tiny dot. Folks, I'm no Professor Brian Cox, but I'm going to have a crack at some astrophysics here. Pathetic humans, prepare to write down the recipe! Let's start with carbon. Carbon is a chemical element like oxygen that we breathe, or helium, the gas that makes a party balloon float. If you put pure carbon under enough pressure, it actually turns to diamonds. There is heaps of carbon in our universe, and it's made by stars. When stars die, they explode and send carbon out into the universe. Carbon is known as the building blocks of the universe because, well, it's everywhere. When our Earth was forming, it collected up some carbon that was floating around nearby, and this played a huge part in the formation of our planet and of all the other planets in our solar system. Maybe you've heard that scientists think it rains diamonds on Neptune. That just means it's raining carbon, and the atmosphere on Neptune creates so much pressure that the carbon turns to diamonds. Anywho, once our planet Earth was formed, it stored its carbon away, like in rocks. It doesn't let any out into space, thanks to our atmosphere, and it doesn't let any more in, unless there's like an asteroid or something like that, which might bring a little bit more, but that's quite insignificant. So for argument's sake, Earth is a closed system, like the Wonka Chocolate Factory. But carbon can't stay locked up in storage forever. It does very slowly get out of the rocks and other stuff and into the atmosphere. We humans are also made of carbon. Our lungs take in oxygen and then we breathe out carbon dioxide. That's carbon and oxygen mixed together. Now, if our planet just kept releasing its stored carbon into the atmosphere, eventually we'd get this thing called a runaway greenhouse effect. That means way too much carbon makes the atmosphere too thick and the planet gets so hot all the water evaporates, nothing can live. It's a very dramatic thing, but it actually happened on Venus, our next door neighbor planet. But you don't need to lose sleep over a runaway greenhouse effect. Luckily for us, our planet Earth has an ingenious way of cycling the carbon that seeps out back into the Earth system. It's truly amazing and probably the most incredible topic of this season of our podcast. Okay, so that was for sure the Reader's Digest version of how the Earth was formed, but I'm, I'm going to put some more information and links in our resource pack for you, so please head to go to curious.com slash resources and find the pack for this episode. So I can confirm, we have carbon on Earth. It is stored in everything, but we think of the main storage units as reservoirs. These are the ocean, the atmosphere, plants, soil, and fossil fuels. That's coal, natural gas, oil, the stuff that miners dig out of the ground in Western Australia. 
The carbon seeps out of those reservoirs, but how? And how does our incredible planet cycle that carbon back into the system? Time for some expert help from Ivana and Stephanie if they're still there after my spiel. <laughs> yes, we're still here. Didn't hang up? Good. <laughs> so, Stephanie, why is carbon such an important chemical element? So carbon is a fundamental building block of all life on Earth. So all of us, all of us humans, are about 18% carbon. And as you say, Jamie, it's also part of carbon dioxide, which is a greenhouse gas. And that does help Earth hold on to some of the sun's energy. It makes a little blanket around the Earth. But too much, um, and we turn into Venus, as you said. But without it, our oceans would be frozen solid. So really, the Earth's carbon cycle is balancing out all of this carbon dioxide and keeping us just at the right temperature. And in what ways does carbon make its way from storage and reservoirs out into the Earth's atmosphere? So do you want a slow way or a fast way? Um, let's start with the slow way, please. Okay, so um, I'll just give you a couple of examples. So when we think about the slow transition um, of the carbon from these reservoirs, such as rocks or sediments, we have something called weathering, which is just like a process through which, I mean, like rocks slowly get used up. You know, like when you have like pebbles on a beach and they're all round and they used mm-hmm. to be like square, it's kind of weathering the okay. ocean. Through a similar process, any kind of like rocks or anything goes through that stuff. And as that happens, as these rocks and sediments and, and things get used up, they just, through natural process, that carve some portion of the carbon gets released in the atmosphere. That's like the best example. There's some other examples that um, like slow release from the swamps, um, just like really long-term release that they're just part of the natural processes. However, Stephanie can talk about the fast ways. Yeah, so the fast way of getting carbon out of these reservoirs and into the atmosphere is through burning fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. Um, And unfortunately, that's what we've been doing a lot of as humans over the last uh, couple of hundred years. So all of that carbon that's been stored in these reservoirs for hundreds or even thousands, millions of years even, is suddenly being released into the atmosphere. And so as you can expect, that's putting everything out of balance a little bit. The other fast way is another natural process. It's volcanoes. Um, And they release huge amounts of CO2, carbon dioxide, into the atmosphere. But not as much as we've been releasing through our human activities the last couple hundred years. Why is the ocean so important to Earth's carbon cycle? You know, you have to step away and and, and think about Earth as a system of systems. And you said it beautifully. In a sense, you, you can contribute. You can put some of this carbon in these reservoirs. And these reservoirs are kind of locked in parts of the system. So you have like land, atmosphere, ice, and, and ocean. And ocean is an important system. And it's a really good control of this carbon dioxide concentration in atmosphere to two different processes. Um, so first one is just like a physical process. You know, like when you, I don't know if you ever tried to make bubbly water at home, but you can actually go pressurize and push some of the CO2 into the water. That's kind of not really what happens. You don't get bubbles in the ocean, but in a sense, some of that atmospheric CO2 does kind of melt in the ocean and becomes part of it. That's a normal physical process. And and through magical chemistry of the ocean that I'm not going to explain too much, quite a lot of that carbon dioxide actually enters in there. That's the first way. That's like a physical chemical way. But then you have the magical way that phytoplankton does. And, um, and that's something that is called oceanic carbon pump. So the oceanic carbon pump is a process through which plants of the ocean of phytoplankton that Steph and I are in love with so much, pretty much take some of the carbon dioxide that is, um, you know, kind of pushed into the into the ocean and convert it in organic form. So you have this like a physical, it's a physical chemical way, but then you have like biology helping out to transition, to kind of like transition the carbon from the atmosphere into the ocean. And once it gets into the oceanic food web, 
so many magical things that can get, you know, happen to the carbon ultimately poop too. But it's um, ocean is really, really important, not only because it takes that carbon there, except it also stores it for longer periods of time. So ocean is super important for carbon cycle, the most important, of course. So Lockie and I are always saying that phytoplankton are responsible for the oxygen we breathe in every second breath. So you breathe in, thank you, trees. Then you breathe in again. Thank you, phytoplankton. Why is that? Yeah, that's one of my favourite phytoplankton facts, that half of the oxygen in the air that we're breathing right now has come from phytoplankton. So phytoplankton are pretty awesome. They're um, a plant, which means that they can take carbon dioxide and sunlight and turn it into energy for themselves to grow. And their waste product is oxygen, which of course is good news for us because we want to breathe that oxygen. And what about those outbreaths? They are carbon dioxide. Our lungs take most of the oxygen that we breathe in for our bodies to use to stay alive, and then we breathe out that carbon dioxide. What role does the ocean and phytoplankton play in removing that carbon from the atmosphere? Well, as I said before, and I mentioned, I started kind of touching upon the biological carbon pump. So um, Stephanie said phytoplankton is really important. They're plants, and they're going to be the first ones going to capture that inorganic carbon, that carbon dioxide in the ocean transfer it to the organic form. In a sense, they're providing carbon for like 99.99999999% of the oceanic life. Um, so once they convert it, the carbon is available for anybody who comes along. So, you know, you can have a teeny tiny zooplankton coming along, yum, 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 eating it up. And then portion of it's going to go down and poop. But then the bigger zooplankton is going to yum, 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 eat it up. And all the way to the fish that we might eat and all the way to the, uh, to the whales that... Okay, we don't eat, but they're really cute to look at. But that's why phytoplankton is really important because it really injects that carbon, makes that really important transfer from from the inorganic carbon dioxide that we exhale and everybody who's living exhales into the organic form. It pretty much injects it into the you know oceanic food web. What is the difference between organic carbon and inorganic carbon? So inorganic carbon is carbon that is locked in inorganic form, non-living form. So there'll okay. be carbon dioxide. Um, uh, inorganic carbon like um, chalk that's your inorganic carbon yeah you can have inorganic carbon locked in organic form but just as a, in the shape of bones or skeleton okay um, but organic carbon has to be kind of locked in organic compounds such as um, sugars fats mm-hmm. uh, things like things that actually make cells and stuff co2 and, and derivatives of the co2 that exist in the ocean for example be considered inorganic form because CO2, when it starts melting, it starts acting with some of the hydrogen things. So it makes these magical buffer thingies. Things like acid would be inorganic forms of carbon and rocks. But when it's in, in living form or like in, in a happy dirt brown form, that's the organic carbon. Once it transitions through, through the phytoplankton of plants, it enters the realm of organic phytoplankton. And it has to go usually through the bacterial or chemical decomposition to return back into the organic car- inorganic carbon. Right. So without phytoplankton doing their thing, there would be nothing else living in the oceans yeah. at all. And very little carbon being taken up um, in comparison to what we have now. So thank you again, phytoplankton. Okay, so time to take a little break. Listeners at home, you should get cracking on our carbon cycle activity. Go to our website, find episode three, the Great Climate Machine resource pack, and we will see you on the other side. Pause now. back 
talking with Ivana Sechenich and Stephanie Henson about Earth's amazing carbon cycle. So you guys, in Queensland where I live, we have evergreen plants that can flower year-round because, well, it just doesn't get very cold here in winter. It's winter now. I'm sitting here sweating. Um, But in other parts of the world, there are proper seasons, right? It snows, you have to wear a jacket, so on. Trees drop their leaves in autumn and kind of just wait out the winter until spring when they can grow new leaves and flower. As phytoplankton are plant-like creatures, which I know from last season, I'm guessing it's kind of similar for them. Are they affected by the seasons? Yeah, they are affected by the seasons. So just like every other plant, like the ones in your garden, um, they don't do very much in the winter. There's not enough sunlight and nothing is really happening. But then as soon as the sunshine starts coming again in the spring, then boom, you get a huge phytoplankton bloom. Everything starts going crazy, just like all of the flowers in your garden start coming up. Now, there's a bigger seasonal change in high latitudes, like in the North Atlantic, where Avonna and I live, for example, than there is in tropical regions like where you live, Jamie, in Western Australia. Um, And so where you are in the tropics, you might not see much change in the phytoplankton between winter and summer, but we certainly do in the North Atlantic. And how that affects the carbon cycle is because um, when phytoplankton are blooming in the spring, they're taking up way much more carbon dioxide than they are in the wintertime. And also because there's more plant life around, um, that means that more stuff is eating them, more little zooplankton are eating them, they're making more poo. Everyone knows the more you eat, the more you have to poo, right? And as we keep <laughs> hearing, those poos sink down into Hopefully. the ocean. Yeah. Hopefully you don't have the opposite issue. <laughs> exactly. Hopefully you don't have the opposite problem. Zooplankton <laughs> very rarely, as far as I can tell. Um, yeah. and so Regular plankton. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> once those poos have been produced, they sink down in the ocean, as we've heard already, and they take all that carbon with them and sink it down there. We also really need the chemical elements, nitrogen and phosphorus, to sustain life on Earth. If you've ever grown a veggie patch at home or at school, you'd be familiar with these two chemical elements, maybe. When you put fertilizers on your garden, that fertilizer likely contains nitrogen and phosphorus because those are the types of nutrients that plants really love. So my question is, for Ivana, are these elements, phosphorus and nitrogen, important in the ocean as well? Yes, Jamie, these um, these elements are really crucial for the life. I mean, for the phytoplankton growth in the ocean, without them, your little plants, they need the same thing as your garden needs. They really, they cannot sustain their growth. Um, so the, the high latitude areas, like Steph was mentioning before, these blooms that we see usually happen right after winter because winter kind of mixed up the ocean really, really well with all those winds and crazy things that happened during the winter and brought all the yumminess of these, these fertilizers to the surface. And then thanks to the sun and other processes, kept these little phytoplankton close to the surface where they now have lots of food. So they're like, yum, 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 for the lizards. Oh, yum, 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 sun. And they start dividing and making that bloom. The tropical oceans that Steph mentioned before, you don't have so much of that mixing. So these little guys are kind of like most of the time kind of struggling and relying on different processes where you have lots of recycling of that these nutrients happening in the surface. So another aspect of, of these fertilizers that you can see, it's, it's, it's in, in coastal ocean, close, usually close to the big rivers or cities where you have these rivers coming to the ocean and also like pushing some of those fertilizers um, and supporting the growth of the phytoplankton coastal ocean. That's why these coasts are usually productive, like have lots of phytoplankton. But you can also have our poo and our fertilizers coming to the ocean and then, you know, 
magic happens and that little phytoplankton is going to start using those things to to support this growth. So are we getting those nutrients of nitrogen and phosphorus being kind of injected into the ocean by rivers and things like that when it rains as well? Yep. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Cool. If carbon is an important element and part of our Earth system, why are we always hearing on the news and on social media that humans need to reduce carbon emissions? Well, that's because we're altering the Earth's natural carbon cycle, um, which keeps the amount of carbon in the different reservoirs in balance. So by burning all of this ancient carbon, i.e. fossil fuels, we're just putting loads more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and Earth's natural reservoirs just can't keep up. They just can't store all of this extra carbon that's going up there. And so the speed that, that we're putting more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere is just p- putting everything out of balance, basically. And so the Earth's reservoirs are just getting starting to get full, um, and the carbon that we're burning is just getting stuck in the atmosphere. We can't, can't put it anywhere else. <laughs> yes, we did say it doesn't just go out into space. It has to go somewhere within our system. Exactly. So sometimes on social media, I come across this hashtag, there's no planet B, meaning our Earth is a unique planet. We need to protect it so that we can keep living here because there's really no alternative. And I get that. But sometimes you hear people saying that humans could one day leave the Earth and live on Mars. What would be some of the challenges with that? Um, Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm one of the, you know, like a hashtag astronaut i would love to go and live on mars uh, <laughs> just because i read too much science fiction but also like i read lots of you know science and the challenges are great uh, first look mars is not earth we are like mm-hmm. blessed by this amazing system that so beautifully just like hops this carbon left and right and and, and transitions and makes this beautiful area for us to live like aka oxygen and things so so you can start with the atmosphere on mars you know we mentioned atmosphere a lot there is atmosphere on mars but it's kind of thin it's mostly carbon dioxide which is eh, you know it's great for the carbon cycle but there's no oxygen for us to breathe so we have to bring some kind of plants and and, and phytoplankton that's where we talk about terra first step in terraformation making something look like earth is bringing like plants and, and phytoplankton that can actually start harvesting the co2 transitioning into the organic form and producing the oxygen that we can breathe because there's no other way of that happening in a place like Mars. Um, there's another problem with Mars, not just like the fact that there's no natural way of, except some chemical weathering, or transitioning this carbon between the pools, is the fact that, you know, as we spoke about fertilizers, um, you need some of these fertilizers and it's not too much nitrogen in Mars. So in order to support that life, you have to kind of figure out some way to get these fertilizers up there and so on and so on and so on. But again, um, you know, I think the challenges are great, but I'm really hoping they're going to figure it out soon. You know, like we're going to start with teeny tiny domes and so on. And hopefully next couple of centuries or so, we're going to be able to terraform at least a portion of a Mars under a dome um, that's going to be like very much like the Earth because there's no planet B and this is the only home we have. So wherever we go, we're going to always try to mimic this planet that we have and the systems that we know here. As long as Matt Damon is there, I'm happy with that. <laughs> Yeah, the whole story. <laughs> you know, like you know, again, going back to poop. Again, you need so, so that's the thing. The so we know exactly he wanted to plant no plant the potatoes. What are yeah, you no, eating? The reason why he needed to collect his poop is the fact that there was that the nitrogen in the poop to support the growth, the nitrogen mm-hmm. and other stuff in the poop to support the growth of the potatoes. Yep. But again, that was just his source of food. Mm-hmm. He had enough oxygen, as I recall. I don't know. Did he have scrubbers? I, I, <laughs> he could make he he well, he can make rain. It's Med Damon. Okay, time for some drama. 
what would have to happen to Earth's carbon cycle for us to experience a runaway greenhouse effect like we can see on Venus? Well, if we burnt all the fossil fuels, well, you know, we'd get a little greenhouse effect, but to get a runaway greenhouse effect, we'd also have to start removing some of those natural carbon sinks that we've heard about. So cut down the forests, uh, dry up the oceans, get rid of all the phytoplankton, that would be terrible, kill off all the phytoplankton. And then all of the CO2, the carbon dioxide then that we keep burning and releasing, is just getting stuck in the atmosphere and there's nothing to remove it. And once we do that and the oceans start drying up and we have a runaway greenhouse effect, then we're really in trouble. That's our life support system um, is gone then. Okay, to wrap up, here is a little story about me. In between researching for this episode, I went to a yoga class. Now, if you've ever done some yoga, you would have performed a sequence called a sun salutation. I'll stick a link to one in the resource pack in case you've never heard of it. So I'm at my yoga class and doing my sun salutation sequence, which is a continuous cycle from standing poses to lunges to floor poses. While I'm in the middle of the sequence, I'm thinking how much it reminds me of the carbon cycle with all this rising up, sinking down smoothly, continuously again and again. Not that I'm doing anything smoothly because I'm quite terrible at yoga, but there are women around me who are very good at it, so I get the idea. Anywho, if you are ever doing a yoga class and you're starting off with that sun salutation, I want you to think of how our earth is always performing this sequence, just in the background without us noticing it. It's kind of amazing. How did she get you to do yoga? Well, to be honest, I thought she said Yoda. Yoga also stimulates the colon, so... Going back to poop, as you do the sal- sal- salutation. It's poop again. <laughs> yeah, it's always going to come back to the poop. You know, <laughs> you're going to probably see that you know as you can, you know saluting the saluting the sun and, and mimicking the carbon cycle of the earth. You're going to be contributing to this never ever never ending transition of flow of the organic carbon through a living life of Earth. Nice. <laughs> so I mustn't forget to ask you guys our important National Science Week schools theme question. But this year, schools are focusing on food. What is your favorite food and how can you connect it back to phytoplankton? It's like our six degrees from Kevin Bacon phytoplankton <laughs> game. <laughs> well, I, I'm a real veggie lover. And, uh, well, they're plants, right? Vegetables are plants just like phytoplankton. So um, I, I guess that's a similar sort of thing, although I really don't think I'd want to eat a huge plate full of phytoplankton. <laughs> I don't think it would taste very nice. <laughs> I have, I, I like fish. I mean, I love veggies and stuff, but like fish, again, as I said, as phytoplankton takes up the carbon, it jumps up through this ecosystem, gets the fish that serves the fish on the plate. And without that, you know, without the carbon cycle, without phytoplankton, there wouldn't be any yummy fish on a plate or yummy seaweed salad that I also like because seaweed is kind of similar to phytoplankton. It does the same thing. Like, I, I mean, I eat anything and <laughs> anything that is on my plate wouldn't be happening without phytoplankton regardless if it's land or ocean. I will say for our listeners, Ivana is an exceptionally good cook. So mm-hmm. anything she makes is connected to phytoplankton because of her phytoplankton science and everything <laughs> she makes is so delicious, thank especially you. cake. <laughs> so thank you so much, Stephanie and Ivana, for dialing in today from your various challenging time zones. It's been a pleasure to talk with you, and I know we can all appreciate our home planet and our oceans a little bit more after today's discussion. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to share with you, and thank you, Steph, for joining in. This is great. It would be just me trying to explain carbon cycle.
If you're listening during the 2021 National Science Week, we are giving away an Oculus Quest VR headset and the VR game Ocean Rift. To enter the draw, you need to go to our website, go to curious.com, and tell us in 50 words or less how you will use your new VR headset to excite somebody else about science. Links to everything you need are also on our social pages at Go to Curious. Next episode is another chemistry lesson. Jamie and Lachlan will talk to Dr. Katarina Fabricius from the Australian Institute of Marine Science about ocean acidification, or aka bubbling the water that I mentioned before. Yeah. So ocean acidification is a big issue for the health of our beautiful coral reefs here in Australia, especially Queensland. So tune in next time to find out what it's all about. Go do a salutation to the sun. Think of the carbon cycle and we will see you again soon. Actually, It's Phytoplankton is a Go to Curious production proudly supported by a National Science Week grant from the Australian Commonwealth Government. Thank you to all our expert guests collaborating on Season 2 and special thanks to co-presenters Ivona Setinich and Lachlan McKinna who work behind the scenes as script consultants. The series is prepared and written by me, Jamie Cool. I compose our theme music and create the resource materials on our website, gotocurious.com. Our fabulous logos are designed by Hannah at Boone Creative. <laughs>